Good. All right. Well, this morning we are concluding our series in the life of Abraham. We have been walking through Abraham's life for now uh, a number of months. We started all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 in March, and we have been just walking through his life sort of one chapter at a time. And uh, if you've been with us, you'll, you'll know we've seen a lot of the high points of his life and a lot of the really low points in his life. This morning, this is undoubtedly the, the finale. This is the, the final high point that comes in his life. It's not quite the end of his life. You can see he, he continues to, to live into the next chapter, and, and we see the death of Sarah and eventually the death of Abraham as Isaac takes over. But this is, this is the pinnacle. This is the culmination of where God has been bringing Abraham all through his life on this journey of faith. It comes now for God to put him to the test, right? God puts Abraham, the father of faith, and tests his faith, right? In fact, the reason that we look at him as a man of faith is really due to this final moment. So let me ask you, have you ever failed a test, right, whether that's in school or maybe that's, you know, a driving test or maybe at, at school, something like that, or, or at work, I should say? Have you ever failed a test? I, I can say with certainty I have failed all of those, all right? I, I, I was in university, took a math class, and I ended up failing not a test, I failed the entire class, Right? I could give you lots of excuses as to why that was. It's hard, yes, but really it came down to the fact that I was just too proud to ask for help. Right? I, I failed my driving test when I first was going to get my, my N uh, back when I was 17. I was taking the test and I was so nervous at the time that as I'm, I'm driving along with the instructor beside me, I, I was just tunnel visioned and I missed a stop sign. <laughs> Apparently they fail you for that. <laughs> I, I failed the test. I worked for a painting company for a couple years, and one day my, my boss gave me this special assignment. I was to go take some of the newer guys with me, go to a new site, and do all the prep work, do the washing, get everything ready so that they could come in and paint. I didn't realize this was a test. My boss was giving me this, this test at the time, see if, if I could do the job well enough. I didn't really check my work too carefully, I wasn't thinking about it, and so I ended up later, my boss went, what did you do over there? Whoops. I had to go back and redo the whole job myself. I didn't exactly pass the test. See, the truth is, I, I failed all kinds of different tests throughout my life, and perhaps the most significant ones are always the, the spiritual tests, right? It's the temptation I, I didn't run away from. It's the, it's the chance I had to share my faith that I just let slip by, right? Those are the ones that I, that I actually feel most of all. And in fact, as we've read through the story of Abraham, if you've been with us, you'll know that Abraham actually fails a lot of the tests, right? In fact, some of the ones we would say are really, really easy to pass, right? Abraham sells his wife into, into a harem, and you'd think, that's a really easy one to pass, and yet Abraham failed it twice. Two times he sells off Sarah, his wife, into a harem in order to save his own skin. You'd think, what are you doing? Abraham, how can you fail that one? But this morning, we're not looking at his failure. We're actually looking at one he gets right. This is the one he passes with, with flying colors. And yet what I want us to see here 
is that, is that whether Abraham is passing the test or whether he is failing the test, it's not actually about Abraham. The story of Abraham isn't about Abraham, it's about the God of Abraham. That is who we are intended to see here. It's not just about him and what he was going through, it's about God. So this morning, that's really what I want us to see. As, as we kind of walk through this passage, I want us to see exactly what God is doing here and what he is revealing to us. So this morning, we'll, we'll look at just a couple sections. First of all, I want to talk about this test, right? The God who tests us. What, why is he doing that in the first place? Secondly, I want us to see the God who provides, the one in those moments, in those trials, God actually provides for us, and then finally look at how we respond to him. That is, we ought to respond in obedience. So that's the roadmap for us. Let's, let's look at our passage. If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open back to Genesis chapter 22. Start by looking at this, this God who tests. Verse 1 says this, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Now, we can just pause right there because that's already a loaded sentence, right? Moses opens up this, this story and he tells us that what God is about to do is a test for Abraham, right? Everything we're supposed to read here is meant to be seen through that lens that God is putting Abraham to the test. So actually, we're supposed to see there is something going on more than just the instruction itself. So what does God say? Verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Right? God's test for Abraham is that he is supposed to go and offer his son as a sacrifice. And before we even really go any further, you've got to stop and say, what on earth is going on there? Right? Surely, if you were Abraham, you'd be hearing that and thinking, what? God is asking me to do what? Why is he asking that? What is going on? Now, now, we have the benefit of knowing this, this is a test, right? God doesn't really want Isaac to be sacrificed. That's not his end goal. God is, is testing Abraham. He's testing his heart. So if you put yourself in the shoes of Abraham for just a moment as the shock kind of wears off and you start thinking through exactly what God is asking you to do, I'm sure a number of things would come up. But first of all, it would probably be God's asking me to sacrifice my son, Look at how God had said that. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God lays it on. He wants him to understand the impact, the gravity of what he's asking him to do. Take your only son and sacrifice him. See, God is putting Abraham's heart to the test right here. He's saying, do you, do you love me or do you love your son more? Who gets first priority right there? Who, who gets first place in your life? Now, that, that's a gut-wrenching question, isn't it? That, that's, that's a horrible thing to even have to consider. If you're a parent here, you know how just difficult that would be even already. But actually, as we've gone through the story of Abraham, we know actually the stakes are raised even higher, aren't they? See, Abraham has been looking forward to being a father for years. 
He's over 100 years old at this point, and when God called him, he had a barren wife, they had no children, and God comes and says, you're going to have an offspring, you're going to have a son. In fact, you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. Abraham had been looking forward to this. This was his future he had been longing and working for for decades. And now God says, do you love me more or do you love the gift? Is this about the gift or is this about the giver? Who gets first place in your life? Is it the future you hoped for that would be first, or is it me? But actually, we could say the stakes get raised even higher again. Because this isn't just any child to a barren couple that that God is talking about. This is Isaac, the one that God had said, through your offspring, through Isaac, shall come all of the blessings of this covenant that I've made with you. The The whole earth, every nation on earth, will be blessed through Isaac. And so now Abraham is thinking, well, not only is this my son, not only is this the one I've been longing for, the one I've been looking for, working towards, this is the promise of God. How is God asking this of me? And this is perhaps the crux of the text. See, is Abraham going to trust that God's promises are going to come true, or is he going to trust what he can see in front of him? Is he going to trust more what he can hold in his hand, or is he going to trust in God? Does he love God more than his son? Does he love God more than his future? Does he trust God more than what he can hold on to? Right, this is quite the test that God is giving to Abraham. But probably running in the back of your mind is this question, well, is God going to ask me to do that? Right? Is God going to ask me to go sacrifice my son? And I'm going to say, the answer is no. Actually, God is is doing this particular test for a very specific reason. We're going to see that in just a moment. But the Bible clearly talks about child sacrifice. It's an abomination before God. That's not what he's looking for. But here's what may happen. You may be called to give up your children to the mission field. You may be called to give up your children so that you never see them again and they go off and serve God. You may never meet your grandchildren because of what God calls you to do. You may be called to give up the future you had been looking forward to, the retirement you had been working for decades on. You've been saving up this money, waiting for the time you get to go sit on the beach and play golf for the rest of your life, and God may say, it's time for you to give that up. Actually, I have something else for you to do. God may say, actually, all the savings you've acquired, uh, you need to be giving those away. See, God does put us to the test. And God actually suffers no rival for the first place in our hearts. And so he puts us to the test in order to reveal to us what we actually have in our hearts. He tests us in order to show what we put first, what we love first. That God is going to do. God is going to put us to a test. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses puts it this way. He's talking to the nation of Israel while they're in the desert. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, 
to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Right? He continues talking, he says, God, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. See, God brings his people into these tests, and he says for two reasons. One, so that you might actually know what's in your heart, but two, it's ultimately for your good. You see, God doesn't need to test us to know what's in our heart. God knows what's already in our heart. It's us who are so often deceived about who and what lives inside of us. It's so easy to let sin just lie there, hidden, festering in our hearts. See, everyone is patient when you don't have to wait. Try sitting in a doctor's office. You're going to find it's not quite as easy, right? Everyone is generous until they're asked to give. Everyone is humble until we are insulted. See, God brings tests into our lives to actually expose, actually reveal, bring out into the light a lot of the things that we sometimes deceive ourselves about, right? God is teaching us about what is in our hearts. But the trials, these tests have another purpose as well. It's not merely to expose what's going on in our heart, Moses says in Deuteronomy that it's actually for our good. Actually, the testing that God puts us through strengthens our faith as well, right? As we go through these tests, as we go through these trials, and we learn to lean on God, as we learn to rely on his strength, his provision, his love for us, and we see that working more and more in our life, that strengthens our trust in him, right? It's a little bit like trying to, you know, gain confidence by driving, by just reading a manual, right? You can read the ICBC manual and you can learn how to drive, how to operate the vehicle, but it's not until you actually sit in the driver's seat. It's not until you actually start doing it that you will gain more confidence to what you're called to do, right? You could use the example of baking something. You can read the recipe over and over and over again, but until you actually start putting it into practice, it doesn't become real. God puts us through these tests so that the things we know might actually become the things we do. See, nothing will build trust in your life like living through a trial, like going through that and seeing God's faithfulness, seeing God's mercy, seeing God's provision for you. So God puts us through these tests in order to expose our hearts, bring out these sin, but also to strengthen our faith in him. Proverbs puts it this way. It says, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Right, just as the fire refines us, as the fire gets rid of all the impurities and the silver and the gold, so does God put us through these fiery tests in order to refine our lives in order to bring out all of the impurities, all the sin hiding there, and strengthen our faith in him. See, that's what God is doing here with Abraham. He's putting him to the test so that his heart might actually be exposed, his faith might actually be strengthened, and that's what he does for us as well. But like I said, this is not just about Abraham. Actually, this is about the God of Abraham. In fact, God is going to show us more about who he is than anything else. He's going to show us the God who provides. Look back back at your text with me, verse 
3. God God gives Abraham this, this challenge, and then I love what it says. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, got everything together, right? Abraham woke up the next day early in the morning and started obeying what God had called him to do. Right? In fact, this should actually remind us a little bit of how our story began. All the way back in chapter 12, God shows up to Abraham and says, get up and go to the place where I will show you. What happens here? He says, get up and go to the place where I will show you. And Abraham does it. Right? He takes two servants and he grabs Isaac and they start heading on this journey out to Moriah where they can find this place that God is going to show them. And right here, the story really starts slowing down, doesn't it? We start getting all of these details about what's going on, right? Abraham says, okay, you, you servants, you're, you're going to wait right here. Verse 5, he says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. Right? And we're, we're left to wonder, is this Abraham just kind of lying to his servants? Saying, you know what, yeah, we're, we're going to go over there and we're going to come back Wink, right? Is that, is that what Abraham is doing? He's not quite sure if that's going to happen. But as they're walking, Isaac begins to ask questions now. Verse 7, he asks his dad, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What a question for Abraham at that moment, right? Abraham walking up, realizing that it's going to be Isaac, and yet this is what Abraham said. He said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, it might be that Abraham is just thinking wishfully, that he's just saying, well, you know, I I hope that something happens to stop this. And, And we probably have to ask the question, why is Abraham going through with this? What does he really expect is going to happen? And here, actually, the book of Hebrews gives us a very helpful insight into what Abraham was thinking. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, what is in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham is going, and his answers aren't just lies. They're not just wishful thinking. Actually, Abraham has a faith here that is prevailing over even what's happening, even what you might expect to be happening. See, Abraham thought about it, and he said, I trust that God will be faithful even through death. He looked at one hand and said, Isaac is going to die, yet God gave me promises. I trust that the promises that God gave are more faithful than even death, that even death itself cannot impede God's ability to fulfill his promise now. See, Abraham had a faith that even God could raise Isaac from the dead, that God would still be faithful, though he couldn't see how. See, Abraham's faith was in the giver, not the gift. God's promise was worth more than what he could hold in his hand. And so Abraham went with his son. 
He strapped on the wood onto Isaac's back and they walked up the mountain. It says Abraham built this altar up there and he binds Isaac, lays Isaac on there and raises his hand, knife ready to kill his son. And verse 11 comes, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. With a sigh of relief, Abraham lets his hand drop down. God doesn't allow Abraham to hurt his son. Abraham now realizes this was the test that God had for him. He understands why God was doing it. It was to test his heart. He was never going to allow him to sacrifice Isaac. Instead, it was always God's plan to provide a substitute, to provide someone else. And so, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided God provided a sacrifice instead of Isaac, grabs the ram that is there and and brings that to be sacrificed instead. And actually, as we work through the Bible, we see this theme come up again and again that God provides a sacrifice instead of his people. In fact, just in the next book in Exodus, right, there is the, the, the plagues that come across Egypt. As, as the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and as Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let you go, God says, I have one last plague coming. It's the plague that's going to kill all of the firstborn children. But God says, to you, Israel, you are to provide a substitute. There was to be a lamb that would die instead of your son. This Passover lamb would be killed and they would put the blood on the doorpost so that the plague would pass over them. God provides a substitute in their stead. In fact, as you keep on going and as you find they, they, they build the tabernacle in the wilderness and God gives them all of these instructions how they were to come before him and worship, he says, but you are a sinful people and I am a holy God. That there's a punishment for sin. And so instead of you dying, there's going to be a substitute sacrifice that will be made. There is a substitute that will take your place so that you will not die. See, that was what God was starting here with Abraham and Isaac. It was the pattern. It was the signpost that was meant to be a blazing arrow pointing not to Isaac, but actually straight through to the offspring that God had been promising to Abraham all along. He was pointing towards the coming of Jesus. And actually, as soon as we realize that all of the pieces start falling into place in this story, don't they? As they approach this place, this Mount Moriah, see, we normally just call that the Temple Mount. That's where the temple was established, the place where God provides a sacrifice just outside of which Jesus is put to death. In fact, Jesus was the the greater Isaac who didn't carry sticks for an altar. He carried a cross on his back as he went up that mountain, not to find a substitute for him, but he was the substitute for us. 
so that anyone who would believe in him would be saved. See, that is what this is pointing towards. It is a giant arrow to Jesus himself. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, as we talk about the, the turmoil that Abraham would have gone through as he considered that sacrifice, we realize that was never meant to be about Abraham. It was God. It was the Father as he looked at the Son, sending him to be the substitute for our sins, to be in our place, so that anyone who would believe in him would be made right. See, that's the good news of Jesus, through his sacrifice, not ours. The promised Son wasn't Isaac, it was Jesus to come who would bring a blessing into the entire world so that anyone of any nation who would come to him would find peace with God, their sins forgiven and wiped away. If you would today repent of your sins, turn away and trust in Jesus, this blessing is for you. This sacrifice was for you. He is the God who provides, who provided a substitute for Isaac all those years ago and has provided for us a substitute in Jesus Christ. See, the story isn't about Abraham and Isaac. It's about God. It's about Jesus. And see, that's where the story has been pointing us all along. As we have gone through the life of Abraham, we've realized Abraham isn't the hero of the story. It's God. And so the question for us then is then, how do we respond? How do we respond to this God? I think we are called here to respond in obedience. Look back at our text. See, it didn't end with that substitute. In fact, verse 16 continues and throws one more wrench, one more curveball into the story said, the, Abra- or the angel speaks to Abraham again and says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now that should make us think for just a moment, right? See, if you've been with us, you'll recognize those promises. Those are the promises that God has given to Abraham in in these covenants that he's made with Abraham through these, these promises he's been giving. That's what we have seen all throughout. And we've seen, actually, that they are dependent on God. He even says, by myself, I have sworn. And then what does he say? Because you have obeyed. And now we're, we're thrown into this little thought frame that says, well, okay, is, it, is, is Abraham getting these blessings? Is Abraham right with God because he obeyed, because he did the right thing? He passed the test, so now he's good. Was this the one test he had to pass in order to be good with God? Is that what's going on? 
See, back in chapter 15, Abraham was declared righteous by faith. It was his faith that made him right before God. Now it seems to be that he's going to get these blessings because he obeyed. What's going on? Well, if you know your Bibles, you'll know that this sort of conversation continues even into the New Testament. Paul and James begin to talk about these two things, and they both look back at Abraham, and this is what they say. Paul, first, he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul looks at the life of Abraham and says, don't you get it? It's about faith. It's because Abraham believed in God. That meant he was right with God. He was justified, made right with God. But then James comes along. This is what James says. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It seems as though these two writers of the New Testament are looking back at Abraham and coming to two different conclusions. In fact, you can understand how they'd get there reading through the story and seeing these promises God has, and yet it seems to be somehow dependent on Abraham's obedience. So how do you put the two together? I know this sounds like some sort of crazy theological argument, but it's actually not too difficult. See, James actually gave us the answer. He said Abraham was justified by his faith that was shown to be genuine in his obedience. He was made right with God by faith, a faith that was genuine and displayed that as he obeyed. One of the Reformation theologians, John Calvin, puts it this way. He says, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. He says the faith that saves us isn't alone. It's not void of obedience. Actually, they work together. Just like the heat and the light of the sun are always together warming the earth, so faith and obedience work together in the Christian life. Our faith is what saves us, but that faith is not without obedience to God, right? True trust in Jesus results in obedience to him, right? And again, it's not that this obedience is somehow alone, that it's some sort of hard-hearted legalism that we just have to do all the rules and then you'll be good, but it's also not some sort of soft-hearted anarchism, as if it doesn't matter what we do either. Actually, God says, I want all of you. Heart, mind, and action. Faith, love, and obedience all working together. Don't take them apart. Right? It's like trying to separate actions and emotions. It's like trying to not laugh when you find something funny. 
It's actually quite hard, and it feels unnatural, as it should. They're meant to work together. And so we are compelled to obey, not by some external force, but rather because of our faith compels us to obey him. So is that the faith that we have? Does the faith that we have result in this kind of obedience, this kind of life that says, yes, I'm willing to give up the things I've longed for and worked for because God is greater? Is that the kind of faith that defines us? When the test comes, do we say, I joyfully obey him? This morning as we close, I want to call us to that kind of of radical, heartfelt obedience of faith. But I don't know about you, I I look at that and, and I so often think to myself, yeah, but I've failed a lot of tests. I have failed a lot of those tests. I have failed a lot of those opportunities where I was called to obey and I didn't. What do I do? What do I do when I look at my own life and I say, you know what, it just, it hasn't come together like that. I I don't pass all of my tests. What do I do? First of all, let me say, realize you're in good company. You're in good company in this room and in the Bible. Abraham failed a lot of his tests. He failed a lot of them and ones that we think, how did you mess that up? So what do we do? It's not hard. We return to Jesus. We turn to Jesus again, to the one who stood in our place, who paid the penalty for our sins, for our failures, and we come to him and we say, Lord, would you forgive me again? Would you forgive, would you wipe away my sins again? Confess your sins and your failures and seek forgiveness at the cross. See, when God brings a test into our life, when he exposes that sin, it's not so that we would run away and say, I'm so sinful. It's so that we would run to the cross and say, Lord, forgive me again. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Lord, forgive my sins as well. Lord, forgive me. See, when you fail, turn to him. When you succeed, Praise him, because he is the one who has strengthened you to overcome that trial. Give all glory to him. See, it's not about us. It's about God. Let us glorify him in all that we do. In this life, we will never outgrow a need to return to Jesus. So with that in mind, let's pray here together. Worship team, please come forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, that when we did not deserve your grace, when we didn't deserve your mercy, you sent a substitute in our place that we would not pay that penalty, but that you paid it in our stead. Lord, I pray, would you be working in our hearts that we would instill a faith that consumes us, body, mind, soul, heart, actions, deeds, Lord, that we would be wholly devoted to you, 
that our faith would not be a word, but would be what we live out each and every day, that as you bring us these tests, that they would put on display the genuineness of the faith you have given. Lord, I pray, strengthen our faith today so that tomorrow morning we might rise up early to obey our Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.